Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 20, and the two-year anniversary of the podcast. More on that next week. Last week, I began the history of the first dynasty of ancient Egypt and traced through the reign of Pharaoh Den. This week, I'm wrapping up the first and making significant progress through the second dynasty. I'm also covering the history of the Turing King List, so let's get started. When I ended the last episode, I finished up with the pharaoh known as Din. After Din was his son, Enjib. Well, he's at least thought to be the son of Din. Manetho called him Mybidos and claimed he ruled for 26 years. The Turin King List said he ruled for 74 years. So, where does the truth lie? Modern researchers believe that he reigned 8 to 10 years, but there's a great deal of uncertainty with those numbers, too. The overall thought is that his father reigned for a very long time, and Anjib was quite old when he finally took control. Think Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles. There's also evidence that he met a violent end, but we really don't know. We do know he existed, though, which, as you'll find out in a minute, is better than some of his successors. His name appears on pottery labels. There are also ivory tags and pottery jar seals with similar inscriptions. These artifacts have been found in both Abidios and Saqqara. Little is known concerning his family. Like I said, it's believed that Din was his father, but even that is uncertain. Anjib may have been married to Betrest, which may lead you to wonder why she is known, but her relationship to him is undetermined. Well, on the Palmero stone, Betrest is described as the mother of King Simmerket, who was Anjib's successor. So, operating under the premise that the title Pharaoh passed from father to son, that would make Betrest his wife. But, it's only an assumption and specific evidence demonstrating a relationship has yet to be uncovered. Other than the potential that Simmerket was his son, there is no evidence that he had other children. Anjib introduced a new title for himself, but the name isn't really important. He did continue the tradition of claiming rule over both Lower and Upper Egypt. He also built a new fort and a palace. His tomb was accompanied by the tombs of 64 members of his royal court. And that is about all we know of him. Anjib was succeeded by Simmerket, who reigned for about 8 years and around 2920 BC. Of course, Manetho wrote about him, also indicating that some sort of tragedy befell Egypt during his reign. But there were no real specifics on the tragedy. Manetho did say he reigned for 18 years, while the Turin King list claimed 72 years, like father, like supposed son. The current theory is that he sat on the throne for between 8 and 9 years. The Palomero Stone recorded this as his length. There are other artifacts that indicate such a term, too. Like his father, well, like many of the pharaohs of the era, Simmerket's name can be found on pottery, ivory tags, and jar seals. These, too, have been found in both Abadios and Saqqara. Sound familiar? Similar to his predecessor, almost nothing is known about his family, 
His father may have been Anjib, or maybe even Din, and his mother may have been Betrust. And this is all rather confusing, and maybe even familiar. Well, it should be. Both he and Anjib have extremely parallel stories, and both are relatively unknown. So, they may have been father and son, or brothers, or even two names for the same person. We don't really know. Adding confusion to the confusion is that a number of pottery pots have been found with both names on them, which isn't terribly unusual. What is unusual is that many of these were originally inscribed with King Anjib's name. Someone scribbled out Anjib's name and replaced it with Simmerket's. A not-so-widely-supported theory is that Simmerket was a usurper. So, having said all that not-so-clarifying information, let's move along. Simmerket's successor was Kuaha, who may have been his son. But this is merely speculation based on the fact that Kuaha was his successor. And, the records from Kuaha's reign seem to show that he accepted Simmerket as a rightful ruler, not a usurper. There was also a tradition of relabeling pottery, especially very ceremonial pieces. And about that tragedy, calamity, whatever it was, the Palomero Stone mentions a destruction of Egypt towards the beginning of his reign, but it doesn't describe it in any way. Manetho reported something similar as, quoting, His son, Simo says, who reigned for 18 years, in his reign, a very great calamity befell Egypt. A different translation of Manetho reported the calamity as a great pestilence. Who knows? Simmerket's tomb, like most before him, is in Abadius. The smaller size of the tomb, along with the reduced inventory of its contents, seemed to indicate that the builders were rushed in their construction. But then there was something odd. It appears the tomb may have been restored during the reign of one of the Ramses, as many of the objects found were dated to well after his death. The opposite of grave robbers. In fact, the value of the contents exceeded that of his predecessors. The tomb was rediscovered in 1899 by Flinders Petrie, and the ramp to the chamber was still covered in aromatic oil, so much that it was still giving off an aroma thousands of years later. The artifacts inside the main chamber included objects such as inlays and fragments of furniture, copper-made armatures, and jewelry made of ebony, amethyst, and turquoise. Pottery, apparently sourced from the Levant, was also found. It's thought that this pottery once contained aromatic oil, which was probably very valuable at the time. Just outside the tomb and near the entrance, a damaged black granite tomb stele was inscribed with Simmerket's name. And, like many of his predecessors, he was buried with 67 members of his court. But the interesting thing here is that his tomb was placed over the top of the tombs of those people. Some researchers think this indicated the others willingly departed, but in my mind, it indicates nothing more than that they were buried under him, willingly or not. So, next is Kua'a, believed to be the last king of the first dynasty of Egypt. His parents are not attested to on any artifact, but tradition being what it is, 
It's commonly believed that either Anjip or Simerket was his father. Manetho was a bit more decisive, claiming his dad to be Simerket. He reigned for about 33 years, sometime around 2900 BC. Manetho claimed he reigned for 26 years. At least we're getting closer. Not a number between 8 and 74, like his predecessor, but a number between 26 and 33. That's historical progress. How the number 33 is arrived at is worth describing. Several stone inscriptions mention a second said festival for him. Now, the first of such festivals was not held until a monarch had ruled for 30 years. Subsequent festivals could be held every three years. And the carving shows two such festivals, so voila, 33 years. The Palermo stone isn't quite as descriptive. Kua'a's tomb at Abadayos is relatively large, which lends credence to a longer reign, as well as a generally prosperous period. Some researchers propose that tomb size is correlated with reign length. He was buried with 26 members of the royal court. At least the number is getting smaller. Inscriptions in the tomb indicate that Hotep Sekwi succeeded him, but that doesn't mean it was an easy transition. In fact, there's evidence that shows that after he died, a war broke out between the various factions vying for control of the throne. A few artifacts show a pharaoh named Snef-Irka, but this could merely be an alternate name for Kiwa'a. Let's work under the assumption that he was a different ruler. And, of this ruler, we know little. His name has been found in a few locations, but these have an unusual hieroglyphic construction and many do not display the symbol of a falcon normally associated with a ruler, so who knows. Overall, it's been proposed that Snef Erko and a ruler known as Horus Bird fought for power and this fight led to the end of the First Dynasty. The fight may have led to the both of them being left off future king list. So, about this bird ruler, Horus Bird. There are two artifacts that names a king as Horus Bird. Yep, spelled just like it sounds, but not for the obvious reasons. On these two artifacts are the Serex of a king, but the hieroglyphic symbol used to write the king's name is pretty much illegible. You can make out the drawing of a bird, though, hence the name. Horus for king and bird for, well, bird and even the type of bird is in dispute. Some see a goose, while others see a stork. No one has proposed a falcon. Researchers believe that Sneferka and Birdman fought each other for the right to party as the ruler of Egypt. The struggles crescendoed to the point of plundering the royal cemetery at Abadias, leading to its abandonment. Then there's the theory that Birdman never really existed and is merely a symbol added to the old tombs by later rulers. Overall, not much is known about him, and of course, we don't even know where he was buried. The next ruler, Hotep Sekwi, ended the fight between Snefekar and Horus Bird, finally seizing the throne of Egypt, and in doing so, began the Second Dynasty. Which of course gets me to Hotep Sekwi, and that's the last time I'll even attempt to pronounce his name. I'll just call him Hotep. No one really knows how long he ruled. 
The Turin king list shows 95 years, and Manetho said it was 38. Here we go again. The current theory is between 25 and 29 years, so no said festival for him. Like most of the rulers of the first few dynasties, his real attestation is from pottery, stone inscriptions, and jar seals. It's also shown on bone cylinders, all found at Abidios and Saqqara, and also in Giza and Badri. Hotep's full name, the one I'm not saying anymore, is translated by some as conciliation, or maybe as to be reconciled. This is thought to indicate a political reuniting of the two geographic and political territories, upper and lower, and also the two competing deities, Horus and Set. Like so many, his family is unknown. His wife may have been, well, you know, it really doesn't matter. He did restore the tomb of his predecessor, Kua'a, and this is thought to signify that he was legitimizing Kua'a's reign. Manetho reported that another calamity befell Egypt and during Hotep's reign. A chasm opened up near Bubestris and many perished. The area around Bubestris is an active earthquake zone, but a canyon opening up and killing many people in Lower Egypt, I don't know, but I wasn't there. Hotep's tomb hasn't been found, but there are tombs of unknown rulers, so it may be one of these and a few artifacts attesting to him have been found in a few such tombs, but to date, no positive tomb identification has been made. Hotep was succeeded by Ranib, who reigned between 10 and 14 years, so sometime around 2850 BC, and there's a dispute over his name. Sometimes it's rendered as Ranib and others Nebra, and the rendering has significance, Ranib can be interpreted to mean, Ra is my lord, so the sun god ruled over the pharaoh. And Nebra can be translated to, lord of the sun, meaning the pharaoh ruled over the sun. Keep in mind that at the time he ruled, whatever his name is, the sun was not worshipped independently. This would not happen until the next dynasty, the third. His name has been found, like everyone's, on pottery and stone, but it's also on marble and plaster. This is where an arid climate comes in handy, not so much if you're thirsty. And there's something a little curious. Nebra's name is never found by itself. It's either found with his predecessor Hotep, or his successor, Nenebjur. Very recently, in this case in 2012, his name, whichever name, was found in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. So, why is this significant? You see, the location was along an ancient trade route thought to lead to copper and turquoise mines. It's in the same area where the names of leaders through the 4th dynasty have been found. His wife's name is unclear, as are the names of his children, assuming any of these existed. Little is known about what happened during Nebra's rule. The Palmyra stone shows that the combined rule of Hotep in Nebra was 39 years. The conclusion that his reign was shorter than Hotep's is based on him having fewer records of his rule than his predecessor. So, he must have ruled for a shorter time period, right? Maybe not. 
Unfortunately, the Turing King list is damaged in this section that would refer to his reign, and Manetho said 39 years, but you should know by now that his dates are rather suspect. Like his predecessor, the location of Nebra's tomb is currently unknown, but also like his predecessor, he could be associated with a tomb already uncovered but yet to be positively identified. Nebra was succeeded by Ninetjer, who I'll get to in a minute, but first a slight detour. I mentioned the Turin King list several times, and it's certainly worthy of a deeper dive. The Turin King list is sometimes referred to as the Turin Royal Canon. It's an ancient Egyptian papyrus, written in hieratic and believed to date to the reign of Pharaoh Ramses II, who ruled in the 19th dynasty during the New Kingdom, in between 1279 and 1213 BC. This would have placed him on a throne about 150 years after Moses' death. Overall, along with the Palmero Stone, it combined to form the most exhaustive list available of kings compiled by the ancient Egyptians. Given this, they are the basis for most of the timeline of rulers before the reign of Ramses II, so get used to me referring to it. Both the beginning and ending of the list are nowhere to be found, lost. There is no introduction, and the list does not continue after the 19th dynasty. That's why it's mostly thought to have been created then. But the truth is, it could have been created after that time, and it only ran through Ramses II, or the part after Ramses is missing. The papyrus lists the names of rulers, the lengths of their reigns and years, and even has months and days for some of the pharaohs. In several instances, the rulers are grouped together by family. These groupings roughly agree with the dynasty of Manetho's book. And there's something else. The list includes the names of short-lived rulers as well as those who controlled smaller territories. Many of these were not mentioned in other sources. There's a theory that the list contains kings from the 15th dynasty. I'll cover the significance of this when I get to that era. It also lists the Hyksos, who ruled Lower Egypt and the Nile Delta. The Hyksos are listed without the typical hieroglyph, thought to indicate they were foreign to Egypt. In addition to the humans on the list, it also includes mythical kings such as gods, demigods, and spirits. The papyrus doesn't appear to have been formally created. Instead, it looks like an informal list. What makes researchers think this? It's written on the reverse side of a tax roll. Since it's on repurposed paper, it may show that the list was very important to the author. Or it may have been created to serve as a sort of administrative aid. Also, the repurposement does call into question its accuracy. The text was discovered by an Italian explorer, Bernardino Dervati, in 1820 at Thebes. Four years later, the Egyptian Museum in Turin, Italy, acquired the papyrus. Unfortunately, when it was unrolled in Turin, it was discovered to have disintegrated into small fragments. Jean-Francois Champillon, remember him from the Rosetta Stone episode? Well, in regards to the Turin list, he could recognize only some of the larger fragments containing royal names. To aid in his research, 
he drew out the parts he could read, producing a reconstruction of the list to aid in deciphering. In the years that followed, still in the 19th century, other researchers slowly pieced together the text. This work has continued through the present day, but in the end, any decipherment is swimming upstream against two distinct currents. First, about half of the papyrus is missing. That's a problem. And second, when compared to other documents, tombs, and monuments, there are some discrepancies and not all of the names correspond. In its current construction, the papyrus is about five and a half feet or 170 centimeters long and 16 inches or 41 centimeters wide and made up of about 160 separate fragments. Finally, there's been a relatively recent development. In 2009, previously unpublished fragments were discovered in the storage room of the Egyptian Museum of Turin, and these fragments are in relatively good condition. Given this, we can expect new research with additional findings in the near future. Stepping back to the successor of Nebra, a lad named Ninebjur. Unlike many of his recent predecessors, Ninebjur is fairly well attested to. His name appears in stone inscriptions and clay jar seals. Many of these were uncovered at his tomb in Saqqara. Other artifacts, in fact many such ancient items were found at Abadaios, in the tomb of Peribson, who may have ruled after him. I'll cover Peribson in the next episode. An artifact with his name may have been found as far away as Lower Nubia, thought to indicate a military expedition to that region. His name may be translated to either Golden Offspring or Golden Calf. Hmm. The exact length of his reign is unknown, ranging from 36 to 96 years. The 36-year figure is from the Palmero Stone. The Turin King List provides the 96 years. Manetho wrote that he ruled for 47 years. Current research suggests either 43 or 45 years. And, like Din, who I covered in the last episode, the uncovered documents list a few fun facts. The flood levels of the annual Nile inundation, the highest being almost 8 feet or 2.4 meters in his 17th year. At least 10 cattle censuses, which leads you to wonder why they counted the heads of cattle so much. Well, it seems this was in order to levy a sort of property tax on livestock. The racing of the Apis bull, the appearance of the king of Lower Egypt with no other explanation, and this was recorded twice. But the part of the text that lists this is partially damaged, so the complete meaning may be lost forever. Towards the end of his reign, the kingdom was apparently in decline, and the cause of this decline is not agreed upon by researchers. Some think this was due to an increasing bureaucratic government, while others point to a socio-economic problem such as an extended drought. But the records of the Nile flooding tend to contradict the drought theory. Either way, it appears he decided to divide the kingdom in two and leave it to two different rulers, perhaps two of his sons, maybe thinking that the two rulers could better administer the territory. 
I'll cover the theories surrounding Bud's successors in the next episode, and I'll end this episode with his tomb. The tomb, especially compared to the leaders before and after, is unusually large and includes a maze-like system of doorways, vestibules, and hallways. Inside, archaeologists found 56 flint knives, 44 razors, 44 other blades along with wine and beer jars. There were also carrying nets, wooden storage boxes, and decorated alabaster bottles. In an adjacent room were many mummy masks and a woman's coffin dating to the 19th dynasty, which shows parts of the tomb were used by later rulers. And that's where I'll end this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with his successors while also covering the Pomero Stone. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.